Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from Psalm 120. In fact, it is Psalm 120, verses 1 through 7. And this psalm actually comes right after the longest chapter of the whole Bible, the longest psalm, Psalm 119, which is a whole meditation on the gift that the Word of God is to us. But Psalm 120 then starts a whole new section of songs of ascents, the songs that people would sing as they are going up to Jerusalem for the various festivals throughout the year. So these are the songs that people would know, they would know well, that would be just in them, that they would sing together. These are kind of the, the show tunes you sing on the road kind of thing as you're traveling <laughs> for the various holidays. These were those psalms, and this is the first one, Psalm 120. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made, and God, we do thank you for the gift that your word is to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not take your word for granted and to not take it lightly. But Lord, that we would take seriously and joyfully your word which you have given to us for our benefit, for our good. Lord, in helping us to know better who you are, to know better who we are, to know the purpose for which we have been created, to know the work that you have done in this world and the things that you have promised for us and for all in the days to come. Lord, help us to hear your word today and help us to live it today and every day. All this we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Psalm 120. I call on the Lord in my distress, and he answers me. Save me, Lord, from lying lips and from deceitful tongues. What will he do to you, and what more besides, you deceitful tongue? He will punish you with a warrior's sharp arrows, with burning coals of the broom bush. Woe to me that I dwell in Meshech, that I live among the tents of Kedar. Too long have I lived among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. Turning then to our New Testament reading, Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. The parable that Jesus tells about what the kingdom of heaven is like in response to a question about Peter. And I always imagine that when Peter asks this question, he goes as far as the number seven as a way of showing that he's really, really spiritual. (laughs) Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the man ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. 
his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. One of my favorite parts of the movie, The Nativity Story, which, if you have not seen it, you should see it. It's a good movie, (laughs) and this is the right time of year to watch it. One of my favorite parts of the movie, The Nativity Story, is the part where King Herod realizes that there is a new king, this new threat to his throne that is going to be in Bethlehem, and so he sends people to kind of be the guards and the, the border crossing sort of thing, and to make sure that no mighty political warrior ruler kind of man could come in to the city and be a threat to his throne. And right when that happens, then you get the scene of the guards standing there and pregnant Mary riding by, completely overlooked by the guards. And it's a beautiful moment because that is the the brilliance of the plan. That in the world's eyes, we're looking for the great and the powerful and those that make a big splash. And then Jesus gets smuggled in as a tiny baby in his mother's womb that nobody is concerned about. What possible impact could a pregnant woman have? What possible impact could the tiny little baby have? But this is what we celebrate every Christmas, is that that tiny little baby is the one that changes the whole world. Now, this tiny little baby is the answer to all of the questions that, that have been raised throughout the whole of human history. It is, it, this tiny little baby is the fulfillment of all the prophecies of all the Old Testament. Not to be overlooked, but to be worshipped. This same theme shows up again and again throughout the Bible, of the small things, the things that to the world seem insignificant, turn out to have so much significance in the kingdom of God. And for this reason, we are doing a series right now on some of the smaller, more overlooked books in our own Bibles. The books that maybe you don't hear preached on all the time, and maybe you don't see verses from these as much just because they're smaller. And yet, some of these small books <laughs> have the power to change lives. So this is what we're looking at this season. We have looked so far at Second John and Third John and Philemon, and now we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at the book of Titus. And in this letter that Paul writes to Titus, there's a lot. It's a short little book. There's a lot in here. And so today, we're just going to look at the introduction. That's how much is in this. 
We're just going to look at the first four verses of the way that Paul introduces who he is. Even though Titus already knows him really well, Paul introduces who he is in a way that says so much, we're not even going to have time to get to anything else. So here, how he opens this letter. I should tell you before I go any further, Titus is someone who has come to faith through the ministry of Paul. Titus has been left at Crete, and they have planted some churches there, and now Paul is telling Titus, hey, here's what you need to be doing there. And we will look more at that in weeks to come as far as what Titus is supposed to be doing, appointing elders, and what that is to look like in his ministry there at Crete. That said, here's the message that Paul writes to Titus. This is the way that he introduces this whole letter and himself. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season, he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our savior to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. What was that, Paul? (laughs) Slow down a bit. You're covering a lot of ground really quickly. We're going to break this down, and we're going to do so by looking at it in sections with couples of words. And the first couple of words we're going to look at are the words servant and apostle, because that's how Paul initially describes himself, is as a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. That the way he identifies himself is not by what family he comes from, It's not by the training that he had had as a Pharisee. But he says, who I am, my identity is in God. My identity is in Christ Jesus. That's how I identify myself now. When I introduce myself, I say, I'm Paul. I am a servant of God. I'm not a church planter. I'm not a missionary. I'm I'm a servant of God. I do what it is that he has called me to do. That's who I am. And he says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. And that just means someone who has been sent by Jesus. And so he understands that his role is that of a servant. And he has been commissioned. He has been sent for a particular purpose. A servant and an apostle. Well, what is the purpose that he has been sent for? And he says, it is to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. So our two words here are faith and knowledge. Because that's what he is sent to further. To further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. In other words, faith is teaching people to trust God. So when he says to further the faith of God's elect, it's to help people to trust God more in everything they're going through. This is what Paul has been sent to do. So everywhere he goes, this is one of the things he's doing, is trying to help people to trust God more in everything. And to further their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is where he is teaching. And if you read the letters that he writes, there's a lot of teaching there. But he's not just concerned with teaching anything. He's concerned with 
furthering their knowledge of the truth, but of the truth that leads to godliness. This is where, unfortunately, I think we get off track sometimes because we think that as long as something is true, we're supposed to tell people. And that's not true. <laughs> Give you an example. You don't see somebody on the street who is particularly ugly and just have to go up and tell them how ugly they are, right? You say, well, but it's true. They're really ugly. I need to tell them that. No, you don't. <laughs> We are not called to say everything that is true. (laughs) Well, it's true. And in fact, the defense of, well, it's it's true, is often just a defense for being mean. (laughs) And that's not what Paul is concerned with, is telling people things that are true, but that are mean. Now, it doesn't mean that you only say things that are true if they're nice, because we're reading 2 Corinthians this week, and he talks about how he sent a letter to the church in Corinth that hurt their feelings It made them sorrowful over their own sin. And he said, yeah, I'm sorry, not sorry. <laughs> like, that's good that that happened because of what it led to. It wasn't a godless sorrow. It was a godly sorrow. It was one that led you to repentance. It's what actually led you to godliness. This is what Paul is trying to promote is then further is faith of God's elect that people would trust in God more and their knowledge of the truth, the truth that leads to godliness. There is, along those same lines, if I hear that someone is, oh, so-and-so is having an affair, did you hear? Is that the kind of thing that my response should be to call up all my friends and let them know? Why not? It's true, right? I heard it from a reliable source. They would know. So why don't I call them and tell them? There are several reasons, (laughs) and I hope those spring to your mind. That no matter how juicy this is, this is not a sharing of the truth that leads, and furthering of the truth, knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. This is a spreading of gossip, right? We know that. We can recognize that. Whether or not we live that way is another matter, but we recognize it, right? At least when we see it in other people. <laughs> and there's another thing along these same lines, and this picture has stuck with me. Andrew, will you show the picture we have here? This. Okay. It's a little humorous. That's not the reason I share it. I find this picture actually to be m- much more sad than humorous. For those of you who can't see the writing, it's kind of faint there. The person holding the tuba is labeled Christians. The tuba is labeled conspiracy theories, and the person being blasted is called is labeled people who need to hear the gospel. Ouch. I share this not because it's funny. Like I say, I find it much more sad than funny. And I don't share this as a way of, you know, calling you out on this if <laughs> this hits a little too close to home. I share this because a picture is worth a thousand words, and this is a picture that has stuck with me for a while now since I saw it several months ago as a reminder that we have a message and that when we get off track and are not proclaiming the message that we have been given, the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, 
Who gets hurt? The people who need the message we have. We can't get off message. We need to not be blasting people with gossip, whatever form it takes. But we need to discipline even our own tongues as we continually and consistently share the message of Jesus. I say the message of Jesus, this is what Paul is talking about. Through this letter, it's what Paul always talks about. He has had his life changed by Jesus. And he wants everybody to know about the life that we have in Jesus. And when he says the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, you say, well, what does godliness look like? What does it look like to live a godly life? looks like Jesus, right? The one person who really is the image of God. And so as we've uh, talked about before, it means having a Jesus-shaped life, one that is marked by self-giving sacrifice and love for the good of others. And this is where he goes next. Next two words are hope and promise. He says this is all in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time, and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. He's talking about the eternal life, that in and of ourselves what we have is nothing but sin and death, but that God has something different for us. This has been the promise from the beginning. In fact, he says this was promised before the beginning of time. Think about that. I don't know how you use a time word like before to talk about something that happens outside of time itself. I'll let you figure that one out. But he's saying before the beginning of time, this was the plan of God. This is why when he says that it's in the hope of eternal life, that's not like wishful thinking sort of hope. Like, oh, I hope there's eternal life. I hope there's life after death. No, no, no. This is the certainty of looking forward to that which has been promised by God who does not lie. That's why he says it this way. That this is something sure and solid. And while there were people before who had no idea, well, how does that work? Why, why is there life after death? How does it mean, what does it mean for us to have eternal life with God? And especially when we have this whole issue of sin. That doesn't sound like eternal life. That sounds like eternal death if all we have is an eternal separation from God because of our sin. But that's where he says, this has now been brought to light. That at God's appointed season, he's brought this to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. Paul is proclaiming that the problem that we have has been solved in Jesus. That God has saved us from our sin, has saved us from death in Jesus. And it is because of this, and Jesus being raised again to life, that we see that he has defeated the power of sin and he has defeated the power of death. And that there's no more you know, wishful thinking, oh, I hope that maybe there's a, a life after death. I hope there's some kind of eternal life in that sense. But instead, it is a, an eager anticipation and a looking forward to that which is sure because of what Jesus has accomplished through the cross and what we have seen by evidence of his resurrection. This is the message 
This is what we are to be proclaiming to a world that needs to hear that there is good news, that there is an answer to the problem of sin and death, and that God has done it. So then, that's how Paul introduces himself. Not a nice introduction. And then he says, this is to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. And of course, the words here are grace and peace. As Titus has come to this faith in Jesus through the ministry of Paul, Paul has now left Titus to continue spreading this message and appointing others to do the same. My true son in our common faith. If you have come to trust in Jesus, I'm pretty sure that's because somebody told you the good news of Jesus. Whoever that was, the way that Paul talks about it is as though that is your spiritual parent, (laughs) as they are the one through whom God has given you life. And if you are someone who has trusted in Christ, hopefully you have been a spiritual parent to someone. That the long line of people passing this message down generation after generation after generation would not end with you, but that you would continue to spread this good news to those in the next generation, yes, but of every generation. Grace and peace. We defined grace quite a bit around here as granting rewards apart from credit earned. G-R-A-C-E, granting rewards apart from credit earned. That it is just a free gift. This is the good news that God has given his son for us. We did not earn or deserve to be saved, but he gave because of his love. Granting rewards apart from credit earned, grace, it's a gift. And peace, P-E-A-C-E, this one may be bordering on a little bit too clever to be helpful, but hopefully it's helpful. P-E-A-C-E, putting everything as the creator engineered. It's a little awkward. (laughs) Putting everything as the creator engineered. The reason I say it that way, hopefully it is helpful, in understanding peace is not just the absence of fighting, but it's the way things were meant to be from the beginning. That everything being in a right, right relationship, us with God, us with each other, us with all of creation, everything being in a right relationship again, as the creator engineered from the beginning. This is what Christ brings about in our own lives that wholeness, that healing that he brings about in our lives, in our relationship with God and with each other and with creation. And that is just a taste of what is to come when one day all will be as it's supposed to be. And in the meantime, as Paul said again in 2 Corinthians, he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We looked at that parable a little bit ago of the servant who was forgiven much but then didn't forgive. And it's outrageous. This is what this kingdom is about. It's about forgiveness. As you have freely received, freely give. As you have received peace 
with God and with others. And all of that by grace. Give that to others. Help others. I mentioned at the beginning that Paul identified himself as a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We are also referred to as those who are servants of God. We are those who have been sent and commissioned by Jesus. So this Advent, let's not get distracted. Let's not get off message. Let's not miss the reason for this season and all the celebrations there are. And let's not forget our mission in the midst of it to continue to proclaim the good news of Jesus to all who need to hear. There will be Herods this year as there are every year. The powerful who think they have control over so much. Let's not get distracted. But let's be wise men who detour to Bethlehem and worship the true king. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.